All right. Well, today uh, we are resuming our study through the Gospel of Matthew. And so uh, if you've not been here for a while, uh, we took a break from Matthew in the new year to go to the book of Colossians. But now we're back in Matthew. And this is part four of our series, and it's called Opposition Intensified. And the reason it has that name is because as Jesus' ministry continues to become more and more known, as uh, word spreads of his influence and of his authority, of his powerful miracles that he's been performing, um, people are taking notice. Specifically, the political and religious leaders are taking notice, and, and they're not too keen about that. They view Jesus as a threat to their position and their power. And so um, we're going to see their opposition, their intensity increase over the, over the weeks ahead. Now, because it's been three months since we've even been in Matthew, I'm just going to be honest, I'm under no impression that any of you remembers anything about Matthew, okay, and, and uh, that we don't remember where we left off. And so, and, and there's probably new people here today, too, or listening online. There were at the first service, and you didn't even have the benefit of being here in person for the series. And so, for those reasons, I thought it would be helpful for us to go back just at the start of the sermon, just briefly to kind of review, get a quick high-level overview of what has happened in the first 13 chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. You guys okay with that? Good, because I'm going to do it anyways, okay? <laughs> you don't really get a choice in that. So here, here we go. This is the quick high-level overview. Um, in Matthew chapters 1 through 3, uh, we were learning about Jesus' identity, really trying to answer the question, who is Jesus? And there were a number of things that Matthew pointed out. He pointed out that Jesus is the Messiah, meaning that he is the, the anointed one, the one who has been promised and sent by God uh, to rescue and redeem his people. We learned that Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's the long-promised descendant through whom all the nations will be blessed. He's the son of David. So he's the Davidic king. He's the one that they've been waiting for who would rule and reign forever. And we also learned that he is the son of God. So he is literally God come down in human form, and he has the, uh, the plan to save his people from their sins. All fantastic truths about Jesus' identity. And, and when Jesus came, when he arrived here on this earth, it provoked a number of responses from people. Now, the appropriate response would have been like the wise men. Right? They worshiped him. They bowed down. They acknowledged Jesus for who he was. Unfortunately, that's not how many people responded. We see in the example of King Herod, um, he goes right after Jesus and tries to, to murder him as a baby. Uh, we see it in even now, the religious leaders, now that Jesus is an adult, they oppose him. And ultimately, right, they're going to be plotting and, and succeeding and killing him. And so there's a lot of responses to Jesus. So that's, that's chapters 1 through 3, his identity. The, the next set that we studied were chapters 4 through 7. And this is really talking about Jesus' mission and message. And so we learned that, that Jesus' mission, he came here to defeat Satan, his enemy, and also to save his people from their sin. Right? And he accomplished both of those. He defeats Satan at the beginning of his ministry, and he's in the process, as we're reading the gospel, of working out the plan of God to save his people from their sin. And the message that he's proclaiming as he does that is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that is a message of both conviction and hope. It's a message of conviction because right, it hits us right where we're at and says, look, you're not a good person. You can't save yourself. Everyone needs to be rescued by a Savior outside of them. And it's a message of hope because then it points us to who that Savior is right? and how we can trust in him. We, we repent or we turn away from this old way of living in sin and we turn to faith in Jesus Christ. 
He is the one who will rescue us. He is the one who will redeem us. He's the one who gives us the hope of eternal life. And that's ultimately how we prepare for God's kingdom. Now, as Jesus taught about that kingdom, he taught a lot about what it means to be righteous. And if you remember, righteousness is obeying God's will and ways. Obeying God's will and ways. That's what he was calling people to do. Live righteously. Live as a kingdom person. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, which went from chapters 5 through 7, Jesus taught a whole lot about what it meant to be a righteous kingdom person. And it basically turned upside down everything that the Jews knew at that point. Right? They thought, well, we need to say the right things. We need to do the right things. We need to make the temple sacrifices. And then we're good in God's sight. Right? They're focused on these external actions, external speech. And Jesus says, uh, no, it's, it's actually much more intense than that. Uh, God wants your heart. He, he wants you to worship him in your inner man, your inner woman. And out of that flows that speech, flows those actions that are pleasing to him. But the only way that a person can be transformed at that level in their heart is through faith in Christ. That's the answer. Well, after, after hearing all of that, then we got into learning about Jesus's authority in chapters 8 through 13. And so in these chapters, we really began to see Jesus living out what the kingdom of God is going to be like. He began to kind of give us a sneak peek, if you will, give us a, a foretaste of, of the kingdom. And so we see him uh, performing some uh, miracles with authority, actually a lot of miracles with authority, right? We see he's got authority over disease. And so when he tells sickness it must leave, it, it leaves. Right, that's pretty amazing. That's what the kingdom of God's going to be like. There's no more diseases, no more sickness there. That's, that's awesome. Can we get an amen to that? Yeah. Amen, right? That's exciting. We saw that he has authority over demons. Right, so again, when he says to the unclean spirits, leave, they got to go. He has authority over death commands and life returns and they raise from the dead and he has authority over creation right the seas are raging and he says be still and they respond to him amazing authority amazing power that's not where it stops though he also has authority in his teaching and so as he's uh, walking about proclaiming the truths of the kingdom he's doing so in a way that people have never heard before they they are in awe they're like he's teaching with authority not like one of our scribes because he knows what God intended, because he is God with the word. And so he's teaching with authority. Not only that, he then says, I have the authority to forgive sins. Remember with the paralytic? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And, and they take issue with that. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, are like, who is this? Who, you don't have the authority. Well, God alone can do that. You're right. God alone can do that. And guess who's in front of you? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right? He has the authority to forgive sins. And, and lastly, we saw that he has the authority um, to claim the titles of the Old Testament that were uh, true for the Messiah, true for the promised one. So he says, I am the son of man, the one that Daniel had prophesied about. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, meaning he gets to interpret the Old Testament laws and, and how they are played out. And all of that authority he then uses to refute the religious leaders and their man-made rules and their man-made regulations. He says, that's not what God has called you to. He shows them a better way. And he instead takes that authority and he delegates it to his 12 disciples. And he sends them out to preach and to teach and to heal. Well, uh, as they do that, right, there's a response. The religious leaders and, and actually many of the people aren't excited about this. They're, they're hard-hearted. Uh, we read about entire cities, actually, who reject the disciples and reject Christ. 
And so Jesus says, look, woe to you, right? It's going to be harder for you on the day, or it's going to be easier for these other cities who had faith than for you on the day of judgment. So Jesus denounces them for their, their hard-heartedness, their lack of faith. But for those who believe, for those who respond in faith, he blesses them. He, he brings them in. He welcomes them into the kingdom. It doesn't matter whether they're Jew or Gentile. If they have faith, they're welcomed in. It's, a, it's an amazing thing to see. All of that authority, all of that influence, as it continues to grow, draws attention from the religious and political leaders, and they're not excited about it at all. Right? Great crowds are following him. They're in awe of the miracles that he's performing. And the religious leaders are like, nope, no, we can't be having this. This is dangerous for us. And we have to be careful. We learned this. You don't just take excitement for Jesus to be the same thing as faith in Jesus. Right? So these great crowds that are following him, a lot of them are excited. Right? They're, this teaching is amazing. Uh, these things he's doing are amazing. But they're not actually willing to sacrifice everything and follow him. And that's a big distinction between people who are just part of the crowd and people who are faithful followers, disciples of Jesus. That was an important lesson we learned. But either way, right, as the religious leaders are watching, they're like, this guy's got too much influence. He's got too much authority. His message is undermining us. We've got to do something about it. And so opposition rather has been increasing, but it's about to get a whole lot worse. We're about to see it get very intense. And that's what we're going to be studying over the next several months in chapters 14 through 18 of, of the Gospel of Matthew. So go ahead and, and grab your Bibles and uh, open up to Matthew chapter 14. That's where we're going to be at today. We're going to be hitting verses 1 through 21 of chapter 14. That's page 479 of the Blue Bibles if you have one of those. And as you turn there, just kind of give you a, a quick reminder. This is going to be a lot different than Colossians. So if you have been with us for the last nine weeks in Colossians, you really kind of have to change the way you're thinking about approaching the Scriptures. So Colossians is written um, in a very, it's called didactic teaching. It's an epistle. It's very much, it lays out instruction and then says, here's how you apply this. Right? It's very focused on that. Here's the truth. Here's what you do with it. Here's the truth. Here's what you do with it. A gospel is a narrative. It's, it's developing the story of God's plan of redemption, and it's going to move at a slower pace. Its emphasis is not so much on, here's what you do, that, that will be there, and we'll apply the sermon for sure, but it's more about, here's what God has done, here's what Christ has done to rescue and redeem you. So that's helpful to know, I think, as you approach the text for this morning. So let's read now the Word of God in chapter 14 of Matthew. Here's what it says. At that time... Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. 
and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. She brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took it, took the body rather, and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on, the, on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We only have five loaves here and and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the twelve baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Well, there's the word of the Lord for you this morning. And before we, before we progress any further, what we need to do, I think, what's appropriate to do right now is just to be in awe of what we've just read, to be in awe of, of the picture of our Savior that we just have seen. DJ warned us earlier, familiarity can breed uh, like complacency. We just read about the feeding of the 5,000, and it's easy to be like, oh yeah, yeah, that story, I've heard it a lot. I've heard it many times over my time as a Christian. But it should be, wait, you just heard the story of the feeding of the 5,000? You mean the story where where Jesus took five loaves and, and two fish and he multiplied it to feed thousands of hungry people? Yeah, that story, the, the one where there were thousands of, of eyewitnesses, so there's no way it was made up. This is a historical account that really happened. Yeah, that story, right? This is a miracle of epic proportions, and we ought to see it and read it and say, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Right? Clearly, the crowds would have been amazed, like, what's happening right now? The disciples would have been amazed. Jesus is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise. He's showing his authority in amazing ways in this miracle over creation. So with that being said, with that kind of in our heart and our mind, let's look at this, this narrative that we've just read. There, there are really two distinct scenes here. The first scene is in verses 1 through 12, where we see Herod the Tetrarch hearing about Jesus' increasing fame. And he starts to, to say, wait a minute, who is this guy? And he has kind of an odd conclusion, doesn't he? He says, I know what the answer is. This is John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's how he has these miraculous powers. And you have to kind of scratch your head and say, why would he come up with that as the answer? It's not like resurrection was a common thing uh, in those days uh, until Jesus showed up. But why would he assume that it's John the Baptist raised from the dead? And thankfully, um, Matthew gives us some of the background information about why he might come to that conclusion. So verses 3 through 12 are this lengthy flashback. So we're kind of going back in in time a bit to a previous event that's already happened. Matthew's helping his audience remember these are the details surrounding John the Baptist's death. And this flashback that he provides is is frankly quite sad, right? It's it's a very colorful commentary on just how wicked and how um, sinful Herod and the people around him in his court and even in his family were. There's... A reminder even that standing for the truth may cost you your life. 
And as you, as you look at this flashback, it's, it's full of sin. People-pleasing, cowardice, lust, adultery, incest, folly, murder. I mean, it reads like a Game of Thrones episode, right? I mean, that's a modern-day version of the same stuff, of celebrating these immoral behaviors. And we see clearly that Herod is this weak, vain man who's using his power and his authority to try to, to build up his image, to get the approval of others, to satisfy his wicked desires, rather than to do what's right, rather than to do what's honorable. And really that example, I mean, as, as dark as it is, it stands as a brilliant contrast to the character of John the Baptist and Jesus, right? Two men who are laying down their lives for the truth, who are sacrificing for the good of others. It couldn't be a starker, a starker difference here. Now, this is not the, the first time that we've heard about John the Baptist in this particular gospel. He first showed up back in uh, chapter 3 at Jesus' baptism. So let me, let me take us back a bit to that, and it'll be on the screen here. Here's, here's where we first saw John the Baptist. He said in Matthew 3, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John is the forerunner to the Messiah. He's the one whom God has sent to prepare the way and to prepare the people uh, for the Messiah's coming. And so his message is one of repentance, just like we heard Jesus right, preach. It's the same message. Jesus comes and he preaches the very same message. Repent, turn, turn from the old way, turn from sin, and turn to Christ, turn to holiness, turn to righteousness. Well, that's the first time we saw him, but it's not the last time we saw him. We also saw John again in Matthew chapter 3, where now John is in prison and he's wrestling with some things. He's wrestling with his expectations for the Messiah. John had preached that the Messiah was coming, and when he came, he was going to come in power and authority, and he was going to have strong signs of blessing and judgment. That was what his expectations were. Well, when Jesus came, he is, he's un- unveiling the realities of the kingdom gradually. Right? It's not what John expected. And so we had talked about this. You can imagine how it would have been for John. He's in prison now, sitting there wondering, is this the Messiah? Are you the one who was to come, or are we supposed to wait for another? He, he poses those very questions to Jesus. And Jesus' answer to him is essentially, yes, John, I am the Messiah. I am the one you've been waiting for. Look at these miracles. I have the authority that God has sent me with. Put your faith in me. And that's the last we've heard of John until now, until today in chapter 14. And so what I want to do in the time that we have remaining is to talk to you about two lessons that we can learn from the Messiah and his forerunner. Two lessons that we can learn from the Messiah and his forerunner. And frankly, I think it's fascinating to see that that John is willing to lay down his life for the Lord. He's willing to count the cost of standing for truth. God has given him this message to announce the Messiah's coming, to get people ready. And he, he does it. He does it boldly. He's calling Herod, the, the ruler of the area, to repent. So he's definitely not backing down from the truth. But guess what? Herod and Herodias, they don't like that. They don't want their sin pointed out to the rest of the people. And so he's imprisoned. 
And as we see here, he's eventually put to death. And this is actually setting the tone for what comes next in, in Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus is going to follow in the very same path as he stands for the truth. He will be imprisoned, right? And he will be put to death. So as, as we think about that, these men are, are laying down their lives for the truth. And here's, I think, a good takeaway for us, a lesson to learn from them. Be willing to stand for truth despite opposition. Stand for truth despite opposition. A couple of questions just to, to ask yourself as a follow-up. What am I willing to stand for? Am I willing to count the cost of following Christ? Am I willing to lay down my life for the truth? Am I willing to lay down my life for the truth? And we see clearly um, John is willing to lay down his life. He is willing to count the cost of being an ambassador for Christ. He preached God's truth. He called the people to live righteously during his time on this earth. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's his message. And for that message, he paid the ultimate price. Now, when we, when we speak of truth here, here's what we mean. We're talking about God's will and his ways as revealed in his word. The truth is God's will and God's ways as revealed in his word. And here's how we arrive at that definition. God is the origin of truth. He's the preexistent, eternal creator of all things. He's the very source of truth. He gets to declare what is right and wrong, what is true and false. He determines the standard by which we as humans are to live by. The standard by which as Christians we are to live by and then to call others to live by. And that's what, that's what John is doing here when he stands for the truth. He's, he's saying, look, here's how God has called you to live. Don't live in immorality, Herod. Don't live in immorality, Herodias. Your, your adulterous relationship does not please the Lord, your creator. He stood for truth, and it cost him his life. And in just a few short chapters, we're going to see the same thing is, is lining up for Jesus. So I'm going to give you a sneak peek of what's to come. Here we go to Matthew 16, verse 21. Listen to to what Matthew records here. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. There it is. Happened to John. It's happening to Jesus. That there is a price for standing for truth. And it may not be your life for every person that stands for truth, but you better bet that you will be opposed. You will be ostracized. The the light cannot coexist with the darkness. That's That's a truth we see repeated throughout the pages of Scripture. As God's people are seeking to share the gospel with the with the world, the world does not want to hear that. And frankly, you can look around us in our day and age, in our culture, in our nation, and you'll see this playing out even now as many alternative false truths are promoted at a variety of levels. And just and think about it. If you were to go to someone that you know and have a relationship with and to try to you know, share the gospel with them, and as part of that, you're explaining to them, hey, look, you're a sinner. You, you need a savior. Right? That's not going to probably be well received. They might, they might receive it a bit because they care about you and you have a relationship with them, but no one likes to be told that they're not a good person. 
and that, that there is judgment and hell waiting for them from God. Nobody wants to hear that. Or how about this? If you were to say, God says in his word that life begins at conception. Or, hey, God has a wonderful design for marriage. He has a wonderful design for human sexuality that, that leads to human flourishing. Again, those things are anathema in the public square. If you say them, uh, there will be pushback. There will be opposition. So what are Christians to do? Right? Are, are we to, to take up arms and, and fight to the death for these truths? Well, to that question, I would, I would pose another question. What did John do? What did, what did Jesus and his disciples do? No doubt they stood for truth. Right? They stood for truth verbally. They were bold. They were willing to speak out. They were willing to share the hope of the kingdom of God. They used their voices to do that. They used their time, their talent, and their treasures to declare the kingdom. They called the world to defect from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. No doubt about that. And they kept doing it all the way until their voices were silenced. One by one, either by martyrdom at the hand of others or by death at old age. But what you do not see in the, in the scriptures is these men fighting the darkness with military might. That's not the, the case. What they did is they fought it with the only possible answer, the light of the gospel. That's how you push back the dark, with the light of the gospel. And I would even argue that the second scene from what we've read today, is a beautiful example of how to do this, how to bring the gospel to bear on the darkness. And so let's go back to this second passage in in chapter 14 that we read today. Now we're looking at verses 13 through 21. I want to read it again, and then we'll look at it in more detail. It says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns, And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Now, as you, as you process what's happening here, you need to realize that verse 13 comes after verses 1 and 2 in, in the timing of this whole passage. So Herod has heard about Jesus' increasing fame. Jesus realizes it's getting dangerous to be in Herod's grasp, so he moves away from Herod's district. Uh, verses 3 through 12 were a flashback in the past. So this is not Jesus re- responding to John's death as much as it is Jesus responding to the danger that he's in with Herod becoming more aware of him. And so Jesus uh, excuses himself, if you will, from the area with his disciples to go to a quiet, desolate place. 
If you go to the other gospel accounts, you'll see um, what happened immediately preceding this is they had been sent out by Jesus to preach the gospel and to perform healings, and now they've returned, and Jesus wants to get some time alone with them so that they can rest and probably so they can process everything that's just happened. So that's the setting here. And so uh, they go away, right, to a, a desolate place, as it says. But what happens? A great crowd follows them on foot. And what does Jesus say when he sees them? Like, leave us alone for crying out loud. Give us a break. Is that what your Bible says? No. And what does he say? Well, it says he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. That's a great lesson for us. That's our second lesson from the Messiah's example provide or compassionately provide for others compassionately provide for others now here's what it means to have compassion it's to be moved by love to meet another's needs to be moved by love to meet another's needs so when you think about that how how does jesus compassionately provide for this crowd we see that he heals them he feeds them and again, if you go to the other gospel accounts, you'll, you'll read that he teaches them all kinds of things, right? Likely about the kingdom. And so Jesus is using his authority in teaching and providing miraculously and uh, healing to serve the crowds. He's not using his authority to, to benefit himself. He's using his authority for the good of others. It's his compassion that, that motivates him to do that. Now, if you've been here for the last several weeks, you may remember we were back in Colossians 3 not that long ago. And Paul was speaking to the Colossians, and he said, look, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to put on. And he said, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and and on and on he went. Beautiful list of attributes. Where do you think John or Paul got those attributes from? Scripture, certainly, but ultimately from Jesus Christ. Jesus is the compassionate one par excellence. He is the one who exemplifies all of those things. Now, this word for compassion literally means your, your guts, your, your bowels. It was a, an old way of saying uh, your deepest part of your person, the thing that really defines who you are in your, your inner man or your inner woman. So think about what's being said about, about Christ, about your Savior, What defines him? Who he is at his deepest part? It's compassion. It's a a love that that drives him to meet your needs. That's a beautiful picture of our Savior and our Messiah. He cares, and so he acts. He loves you, and so he meets you where you're at, in your brokenness, in your hurt, in your suffering, because he loves you and he cares about you. Man, that's something worth chewing on and dwelling on. That's something that's been impacting me uh, this year. You know, I love, to, I love to share books with you guys, and so I'm going to share another one. This book, Gentle and Lowly um, by Dane Ortland, has been so profound in my life of just helping me understand this particular thing about, about Christ and also about God the Father. Um, the subtitle is The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. It's the reminder that Jesus is a compassionate Savior. He's gentle and lowly, and he loves to help people in their need. He loves to come alongside of sinners and sufferers and meet them where they're at. And it is a beautiful picture. I want to share a quote with you from this book. Here it is. It says, Time and time again, it is the morally disgusting, 
the socially reviled, the inexcusable and undeserving, who do not simply receive Christ's mercy, but to whom Christ most naturally gravitates. He is, by his enemy's testimony, the friend of sinners. Praise God for that. That's good news for a sinner like me. Keeps going. The dominant note left ringing in our ears after reading the Gospels, the most vivid and arresting element of the portrait is the way the Holy Son of God moves toward, touches, heals, embraces, and forgives those who least deserve it, yet truly desire it. That is good news. That is the heart of your Savior. He loves you, and so he comes to you, and he embraces you. He welcomes you in with forgiveness, with healing, with whatever it is that you need in your sickness and suffering or in your battle with sin. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Jesus compassionately provides both spiritually and physically. It doesn't leave you, leave you wanting. He's the whole body, whole soul physician. And we see it here in this passage. Jesus not only uh, fills their bellies, but he also fills their souls. He, he teaches them about the things of the kingdom. Now, if you go to verse 20, it says here, they all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. This is not a meager provision that Jesus provides. He's, he's given you more than you could want. He's all the way to the fullness, right? There's nothing lacking here. And that's not just true physically. Again, that is also true spiritually. And, and as I was, you know, thinking about that this, this week, getting ready for today, I couldn't help but be struck by wondering how many of us here are looking to all sorts of other things to satisfy us, right? In a given week, our, our eyes, our affections are drawn to all these other things. And what is ultimately the result when, when that's where we turn to for satisfaction? We know, right? We've done it. I've done it. You're left feeling hollow and empty. You're not satisfied at all. You're still wanting something to satisfy you. And the reason for that is because you were made to find your satisfaction in Christ alone. He is the one who satisfies you. And in this particular scene, Jesus takes those five loaves and the two fish, and he turns it into enough food to provide 5,000 men plus all of the women and children associated with those men uh, to the point where they were satisfied, that they weren't hungering anymore. Again, a miracle of, of epic proportions that we too often just kind of blow by. Like, yep, feeding 5,000. That's a cool story. Let's go. Next, next what's up? Oh, it is amazing, the, the Savior's use of his authority to provide for his people. He's serving others. And again, thinking about what it came right after, what story it came right after, it's such a difference from King Herod. King Herod is using his power, his authority to serve himself, to try to win the approval of others, to satisfy his own selfish lusts and desires. We see this clear picture that Jesus is better. He's a better king. He's a better example to follow, right? Who are you going to be, like Herod or Jesus? I hope you choose Jesus. Right, which begs the question then, what would it look like for you to follow Jesus' example in this passage, to compassionately provide for others? How will you do that? Notice here that Jesus' response to the disciples when they say, look, uh, send the people away. They, they need to eat. His response was, well, you give them something to eat. 
what, Jesus? We got five loaves and two fish. How are we going to do that? And Jesus knows how the story is going to play out, right? He knows what he's going to do. But there was a lesson that the disciples needed to learn there. Their concerns are your concerns. You need to care about the needs of others. Right? And ultimately, we see Jesus is the one who provides for you so that you can provide for others. We're not to selfishly hoard uh, the things that God has given us. And so, right, after Jesus does the multiplication, he does the miracle, do you notice what he doesn't do? You don't see or hear about Jesus walking up to the crowds and handing them the bread or the fish. Who's handing them the bread or the fish? The disciples. Jesus multiplies them, gives them to the disciples, and the disciples then take it to the crowds. Perhaps they needed to learn. We look to Jesus to provide so that we can then meet the needs of others. Right? They're intimately involved in the compassionate care of these people. And you have to imagine they learned a valuable lesson on that day. Trust the Lord to provide. And when he does, use that provision to serve others. Now, we don't have the same benefit of having Jesus physically here with us uh, to multiply the loaves and the fish. But guess what? We still have his provision in our lives every single day. He's given us time, talent, and treasure. Those are his resources that he's gifted to you. And you are called to be a good steward, a good manager of those resources. So what I want to do as we kind of end the sermon here today is talk about how can you steward what Jesus has entrusted to you to compassionately provide for others. All right, so there's the question. How can you steward Jesus' resources to compassionately provide for others? And there's three takeaways that I want to give you out of this. The first one is this. Say no to wasting money. Say no to wasting money. So we live in a day and age where there's $8 lattes, $2 candy bars, $60 video games, a plethora of streaming services that are happy to bill your credit card every month. It's very easy to spend your income on yourself. To think, what would entertain me? What would, what would bring me pleasure? What would satisfy me? And before you know it, all of, your, all of the money that you bring in is, is spent on yourself. But meanwhile, the reality of our, of our world is that there are many in our communities who they are struggling to put food on the table. They're struggling to make ends meet. The local food pantry, the Grimes Storehouse, has been giving out more food in the, in the recent months than ever before. But there are people in need in our community. Maybe you're, able, um, you're, maybe you're financially in a position to help support a single mom who, who can't afford to pay her rent or who can't afford to cover her daughter's medical bills. But you're not going to be able to do that if you spend all of your disposable money on yourself. Right? If, you're, if your budget is full of extravagant spending on self. So these are just some sample ways that you could say no to wasting money and yes to selfless giving. In fact, we've got a lot of opportunities with our ministry partners to meet needs in our community. They would be more than happy to get a phone call from you or an email from you saying, how can I help? What needs are there in our community that I can help serve and meet? Whether it's with money or with time or with other resources. I would encourage you to go on our website and, and reach out to them. Think through those things. Right? What does it look like to do what Jesus did? To show extravagant compassion and provision for others. Second way that you can do that is by saying no to wasting time. Say no to wasting time. And um, compared to money, time is actually our more valuable resource because it's finite. We only get a certain amount of it, and once it's gone, you can't get it back. 
We better believe that we're going to stand before Jesus one day and give an account for how we used our time. And that terrifies me. And that's the scariest thing for me because I have been a notorious time waster in my life. It's something that I've been trying to grow in ever since I was a teenager. And it's, it's so easy to be in the middle of doing something, you know, eternally significant even, like preparing a sermon. And then there's that phone and somehow my hand just goes over there and grabs it. And I'm on YouTube and 30 minutes go by, right? I've just wasted time instead of doing something that has more eternally significant value. And that happens not always, uh, you know, on sermon prep day, but all sorts of days. And it doesn't always just last for 30 minutes. It could be an hour, right? Those are things that, that are wasteful. They're coming at a cost of something. You know, for us as, as parents of young kids, um, 8 o'clock is a sweet time in the evening because that's when the kids go down. And we love our kids, right? We love you girls. But um, we love the peace and quiet that comes afterwards too. And so that's an opportunity. How am I going to use that time? It's an opportunity for me to learn something new, crack open a book, figure out how to love people better, right? Like this gentle and lowly book. I could read that during that time. Could uh, get together with somebody for coffee, counseling. Could spend some time praying for others. Or there's that phone again. I'm going for it. And sure enough, there's the rest of the evening wasted on YouTube or on the internet. Those are things that we must be aware of. It's easy to plop down and waste time. And I'm having to believe that I'm not the only one who struggles with that. Now, realize that you may say, well, I don't have a lot of time. And okay, whether it's five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you can do something productive with that. Now, you can pray for others. That's an eternally significant use of time. You could call somebody in that amount of time and just say, hey, you're on my mind. I want to let you know I'm thinking about you. Can I pray for you real quick? And then click back to whatever you need to be doing. Those are redemptive uses of time. For some of you, though, um, you probably need to think about making some significant changes in your life. Maybe you're here and you are a part of a, a job or a, a, an employer who they take every minute of your day if, if you'd give it to them. That was my first job out of college. Uh, I worked for a company that would have taken every hour of my week if I, if I would have said yes. Um, and, and maybe you're okay with that. Maybe you don't like it, but you're saying, well, this is just what I've been given, so I have to do it. Maybe it's time to think about that and change that. If, if you're working excessively and you don't have time for your family, if you don't have time for ministry in, in Christ's name, to, to consider making a change, looking for a different job that will give you some of the freedoms that you need to do ministry. And I'm not saying that you can't minister in the workplace. That's not what that's about at all. Just thinking about where is your time going? For others of you, you may need to say no to some of the TV usage that's going on in your life. It's very easy to, to squander away multiple hours a night watching your favorite shows. That's, that's time you could redeem. For still others, it may be video games. That's something that's in my testimony. It was easy to waste entire uh, evenings playing video games. Now, for others who are busy and they're, they're good things, for you, maybe the challenge is maximizing the downtime that you do have, as limited as it may be. And one of the things I've learned over the years is that everyone has to eat, or at least they should eat, right? Everyone should eat. And so a way to maximize time is, if I know we're both going to be eating at a particular time of the day, why don't we just get together, eat lunch together, share a dinner together? That's a great way to spend an hour with a brother or sister or with someone that you're trying to minister to and disciple. Great opportunity to do ministry. Or some of you need to learn how to use a calendar. You've got a lot of things going on, and you feel overwhelmed. You feel disorganized. You need a a system for managing the chaos. 
Learning to make the most of the time so that your schedule isn't driving you crazy. Or perhaps to say no to lesser things. Some of you love to say yes, and that's a, that's a sweet character quality. But sometimes you've got to say no to the lesser things in order to have time for the eternally significant greater things. So you turn down a few opportunities. You've, you turn down a few um, activities or hobbies in your life in order to be able to be free to do the more important things. So here's the question I'm asking you to, to think through. Write down on your bulletin right now. Where am I wasting time in my life? And what steps will I take to address it this week? Where am I wasting time in my life? And how will I take steps to address it this week? Now here's the last area of stewardship that we want to talk about today. Say no to wasting talent. Say no to wasting talent. And this comes back to the idea that every one of you has been given talents and abilities by God. But he didn't give those to you just so that you could uh, hoard up all the benefits of it for yourself. So you may be here and, and learning new things comes just naturally to you, right? You're, you've got a good intellect. You love to read. You love to devour new resources. And praise God for that. I hope that there's tons of growth in your life because of that. But is that where it's meant to end? Your growth? And that's a good thing. But what about coming alongside of another and saying, hey, brother, hey, sister, hey, neighbor, um, hey, coworker, can I walk with you through the season of life that you're going through and, and using what you've learned to minister to them and train them up, disciple them? Maybe you're here and you're a good cook. Maybe you've got a friendly smile. Maybe you're willing to uh, open the doors of your home to others, right? Those are all great gifts, all great talents that you can use to make others welcome. It could be here at the church on Sunday, welcoming people in. It could be in your neighborhood, welcoming your neighbors into your home, getting to know them, building relationships. But the weather's slowly starting to change. We're, we're getting closer and closer to barbecue season. Don't underestimate the power of the backyard barbecue for doing ministry in Jesus' name. You fill the belly, you fill the soul, right? That's a, that's a good thing to do. So ask yourself, what talents has God given me so that I can pa- compassionately provide for others? And as we do that, right, we've got to keep the kingdom in heaven in mind. We're looking to Christ. He's the one who provides for us, not just so that we can be blessed, but so that we can go out and serve and bless others. And Christ's example was to lay his life down, to sacrificially serve for the benefit of others. So much so that we know, right, that the the cross is coming in the gospel. The empty tomb is coming. He's going to bear the wrath of God for my sins and for yours. He's going to raise again, giving us the hope of eternal life. And we ought to worship him for that. He's worthy of our praise. 